For those of you who don't know, my name is Ricky Ragone. I am the youth pastor and music and arts pastor here at the church. Despite what my suit jacket last week may have communicated, I am not the regular teaching pastor. My apologies to those who are still in shock after seeing someone wear a jacket on stage when it wasn't Easter or Christmas Eve. We'll get through this together. We'll get through this together. But with that said, let's turn in our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 44. We're going to keep pressing on in our study of the gospel according to Isaiah. And if you remember, we are in the second section of Isaiah, where the, where the prophet is he's no longer speaking to 8th century Judah, but he's, he's prophesying of things that are going to happen 150 years in the future in to the 6th century um, Israelites as they are in their Babylonian captivity. And the things he's telling them are things that we can look at the scriptures and see act, actually came to pass. Because it's God who was telling his people he would do it through Isaiah. And throughout the chapters that we've covered in this, this book, but really in this section, we've, we've seen... This pattern of God's faithfulness and provision contrasted with Israel's faithlessness and idolatry. We saw it in chapter 41 and 42, and we saw it last week in chapter 43. But I think last week is when we saw one of the most uh, vivid pictures of the affection that God has for his people. As he, he looks at those who he called, and he says, you are precious in my eyes. And honored, and I love you. I give men in return to you, people in exchange for your life. That's not the language of a distant God. Rather, it's a God who truly loves his people. They are precious to him. And it's those same precious people that he called to be his witnesses to the rest of the world. God calls together all the nations of the world who seem to think that they have the answers, that their gods, lowercase g, can outmatch and rival God Almighty. And he makes it abundantly clear. That's not even close to the case. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. And God's precious chosen people were to know, believe, and understand who God was and all that he's done so they could display that to the nations. And if you remember from last week, from there, God then tells his people of the promised provision that he would make for them. This promised provision from exile. He tells them the Babylonians, who, who were this powerhouse, who seemed unstoppable, he was going to have them fleeing as fugitives from their own lands in their boats that they put all their pride in at the hand of the Persians. And he, and he tells Israel, don't live in the past. Don't just look at the things that I've done, but, but live with an, an anticipation of what I will do. He's, he tells them he's doing a new thing. And if he was able to free his people from the mighty hand of Pharaoh back in Exodus, he will surely lead his people out of the exile they're in under Babylon. So he gives them that assurance. And the other issue God would provide for is the biggest issue of all, the one that we see again today in our text, the one that we still see at hand in the world, the problem of sin. 
These people, they've been called by God. There's this affection from God towards them, but they're not showing the same affection toward God. They're, they, they're treating worship as a, a burden. They, they aren't making the sacrifices. They haven't brought burnt offerings, it says. It says their lack of devotion is, was actually wearying and burdening God himself. That's how God puts it. And this is probably a little mirror there for us all to look into and we go, oh, that's all too relatable. But God's response was beautiful. He says, as he looks at those people that he just said, you're not worshiping me, you're not making the offerings, he says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. God would be justified in showing condemnation, but he shows grace. He blots out his transgressions for his own sake. Not according to what they've done, but according to his will and purpose. And this morning we pick up from that thought as we move into chapter 44. And, and this section is really continuing, picking right up from 43, as God continues to reassure his people of his presence with them and his power as the only rock and redeemer that they have. So this morning as we look at Isaiah 44, 1 to 23... We'll see it in three sections. The spirit and the rock, delight and delusion, and redemption and worship. Those are our three sections as we break down this passage. And what I hope that we'll walk away with today is knowing that the the only way we're going to be able to avoid the pitfall of idolatry is by continuing through the power of the spirit to remember our rock and redeemer and all that he's done and will continue to do. So with that said, let's look at the first five verses here in Isaiah 44. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. That's another name for Israel, for his people. means upright ones. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob and another will write on his hand, the Lord's and name himself by the name of Israel. Our passage here begins with the word, but, which shows its connection to what God has just said, where God tells Israel, really, the due penalty for their sins based on their own action was judgment. That judgment resulted in exile from their land, the destruction of their city. But that's not the end of the story. And God here is is giving them a a glimpse of the hope he has in store. First, he he reminds you of three things that we've seen throughout this section, right? He chose them. He created them. He will help them. These reminders, they affirm their identity and their value to God. After utter destruction is mentioned, he then reaffirms that he loves him. He, He loves his people. He values his people. 
And he says, don't fear. There's blessing to come. And it's here that God makes the promise to pour his spirit upon their offspring. And though this promise is kind of just nestled into this big section, it seems like something small. This is a huge promise that he's giving them. God's spirit is what gives life to those who are dead spiritually. The pouring out of God's spirit is what will enable God's people to go from being blind and deaf to being able to see and hear. And Isaiah is using this language of a dry, barren desert to communicate the the life that the Spirit will provide. Water to a thirsty land, streams on a dry ground. I think of those, when I was growing up, I don't know why this always stuck out to me, but I would see commercials for like lotion and they'd always like show dry skin looking like the driest cracked earth you'd ever seen. And then they put the dove on and it's like, oh, it's beautiful. But I just, for some reason, I always, like, because I never saw ground that dry, but that image stuck out to me. And as I'm reading about dry ground, Dove did their, their advertising correctly because the commercial is still popping into my head of this dry ground that's just begging for something to give it water. And that's, that's the kind of dryness that people have, and it needs to be quenched. And it needs to be quenched by the Spirit of God. People who are are thirsty and desperate will run to whatever fount they think will quench them. And those things that aren't God, that aren't His Spirit, sustain temporarily, but eventually, they will leave you spiritually dehydrated entirely. What are those things that we run to outside of Christ that we think will will solve our problems or we think will at least make them just go away momentarily? We run to all kinds of things. The TV, let's escape. Social media, let's see what someone else's problems are. At least I'm not as bad as that guy. We run to drugs, alcohol, porn, food. The list could go on. But if we look to anything outside God himself for our satisfaction to quench that thirst of our souls, we'll be left dry. And that's why God promises to pour his spirit on their offspring. God's Holy Spirit at work in the heart of those whom God has called to himself is the only thing that will take desires that are predisposed to sin and rebellion and change them to desires for the things of God. This promised pouring of the Spirit will be on their offspring, the blessing on their descendants. This is looking forward to what God will do. To a specific time. And even though it's looking forward that he's going to send out this, he's going to pour his Spirit on, that's not to say the Spirit of God has not been actively at work throughout all the Old Testament. We see it from, from creation. When the world is created, his spirit hovers over the water. The, the spirit of God is mentioned in Old Testament books. It's mentioned in the Psalms by David. We know for sure that no one trusts God, Old Covenant or New Covenant, apart from the Spirit's work. No one believes apart from the Spirit awakening their eyes to see. 
But there's a a specific time in history where we see this pouring out in an abundance and a power like had never been seen before, and that's in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. Last week I referenced Acts 1-8, where Jesus tells his apostles they're going to be his witnesses um, for him. But what precedes that is actually the promise of the Holy Spirit. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. It's the Holy Spirit is what empowers them to be his witnesses. And, it, and it's described in Acts 2 that when the Spirit actually is poured out, it comes in like a mighty and rushing wind. There's this, this power behind it. And then there's, there's this power that they are given as we see them witnessing and proclaiming Christ with a boldness that we had never seen before. And people respond to the word that is preached. And then Peter tells them, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. As the Spirit empowers believers to witness with boldness, that same Spirit is also at work in the hearts of those who don't believe, regenerating them to bring them from being dead into life. And as the wave of the Spirit is poured out, there is this crop of believers that spring up, like willows springing up among the grass by the flowering streams, to use the language here of verse 4. And in verse 5, that he describes the people's response. As this spirit is at work, their thirst is quenched, they're springing up. And they say, this one will say, I am the Lord's. And another will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and, the na- and name himself by the name of Israel. Those who are moved by the Spirit will identify themselves as God's people. They are identified with him. Some of those people would be ethnically Jewish, while some of them would be Gentile believers who once identified with, with pagan gods, but now worship Yahweh. They worship the risen Christ. Paul tells us in Galatians three twenty eight and 29, there's neither Jew, Jew nor Greek, There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Isaiah's promise of the pouring out of the Spirit on Israel's offspring and blessing on their descendants is a a promise for all who would believe in Israel. God, who would believe in, as we know, Christ. Anyone who would call on the name of the Lord for salvation is one of Abraham's offspring. There's, there's no bloodline that secures salvation. Only faith in the Redeemer who shed his blood. So after Isaiah, he gives this beautiful picture of the Spirit moving people to identify with God. And then he takes the time, he then reiterates just who that God is. Verses 6 through 8. 
Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. We see similar language here to what we saw last week in chapter 43. God is once again establishing his preeminence as the one and only God. He is the first. He is the last. There never has been nor will there be any God beside him. He says there is no rock. I know not any. And he's omniscient. So if he doesn't know any, we don't know any. Because he knows all things. And I want to focus our attention this morning on this title of rock. Right? It's capitalized here. He's it's referring to God himself. And this title rock, in, in reference to God, can give us multiple pictures. It could make us picture God as this place of refuge and protection. It, we could see it when he says rock, we, we think of this God who doesn't change, who remains constant. God as this place of, of secure footing, as a firm foundation. If we remember back uh, in Exodus in those times when God provided water out of a rock to Israelites in the wilderness. This, this word rock can point us to God as the sustainer and the provider. This is the God who those moved by the Spirit will identify with. This is the God who quenches the spiritual thirst of mankind. Is there anyone else who can fill that role? God himself says, I know not any. One of my favorite songs is the one that we just sang, sung. I never know the past tense of sing. But the one that we just, we just did. <laughs> the solid rock. It's, it's a reminder of that hope we have in Christ. That there's no other foundation that will support us and that all other lowercase g gods are sinking sand. They support for a little while, but ultimately they're washed away. They're not able to sustain us. They're not able to offer security and protection. They're not able to provide any stability for us whatsoever. And that's what God wants to communicate to his people through Isaiah. He's the rock. He's the one they can trust in. And that's why he points out the true folly of putting their trust in anything that is not God Almighty himself. Because Isaiah spells out in this next section of verses, verses 9 through 20, what people are trusting in. There's a long section. We're going to read it all. It won't be all on the screen. But the picture is painted quite clearly how, how foolish their idolatry is. He, he wants them to see the absurdity of it. In verse 9, he says, All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. 
Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool, works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry. His strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches the line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak. Isaiah is very specific here. He gives all the options. And he lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest and he plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it and it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it, warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in fire over the half he eats meat. He roasts and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god. His idol falls down and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire, I also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and have eaten, and shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? As Isaiah just runs through that, and you're reading, you can hear the, the tone in his voice of like, oh, God, Listen to what I'm saying. This is what you're doing? Despite the indisputable fact that there is no other rock besides God himself, people are still prone to idolatry. And I know we've covered idolatry multiple times as we've gone through this series. But an idol is not limited to a little wooden statue in which you bow down to. Idols are anything that take the place of God in our lives. They are anything that we look to for ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment. They are the things that we begin to treasure more than God himself. They could be sinful things. They could just be good things that we've elevated to a level that they don't belong, that are taking too much of our time, too much of our attention. But in the, the case of our text today, Isaiah is addressing the folly of them literally hand-carving their idols. Our idols are just manufactured in a in a factory, still made by human hands. The principle of what Isaiah is teaching here still rings true across the board today. You may be asking, why does he keep addressing it so much? Well, theologian and author Ray Ortland puts it like this. He says, think about it. If there is only one God and we are not experiencing his reviving fullness, there's a reason. 
And the reason is idols are clogging the inflow of his refreshment. The exclusive reality of God forces the question of idolatry. We need to think about this because our world is crowded with idols. Our world today is full of just as many idols, if not more, than the ancient world. They're just crafted differently, but the effects are still the same. They rob God's place in our lives. They take our time. They take our attention. They take our worship. Isaiah points out here that the people delight in them, but they have no profit. And he asks this really brilliant and obvious question. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? And all who who try to be witnesses to these idols' powers, they are put to shame. Those who are witnesses of God's power, the God who actually brings forth what he decrees, they're validated. But those who are witnesses to these pieces crafted by human hands are put to shame because there's no power in what they're testifying to. It's like Isaiah is pointing them to the God of the universe and they're holding up just like a Ken doll. But look, opposable arm. And when they finally stand before the true and living God, it says they'll be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. And then Isaiah walks through meticulously the idol-making process. And he's demonstrating every step of the way Why worshiping anything furnished by man is is pointless, and it's actually absurd. He starts with the ironsmith, who who works and forms the cutting tool. He works on it. He's working hard. But he becomes faint. He becomes tired. His strength fails. And we know from chapter 40 of Isaiah, God does not faint or grow weary. And then that next step, we see the carpenter at work. He uses the tools. He uses his mind to mark out, to form the idol, to form the perfect idol. And he goes to the forest. He picks or plants the exact tree that he wants. And he cuts it down, becomes fuel. He heats himself and he cooks for himself. And what's left, that's what he makes into an idol and says, deliver me for you are my God. And we we get this sense that Isaiah's attitude is, is much like the the famous video clip of R.C. Sproul saying, what's wrong with you people? If you haven't seen it, it's, it's okay. You're not missing much. He literally just says that. I mean, with other better things after it, but what is wrong with you people? Is this a sense of indignation and befuddlement together? How can you go through this process and still worship the idol? You made it. The very tool you used to cut it down was the man who grows tired. You need to use the wood that you're worshiping to also cook food because you need to build your strength. And once that wood burns up, it's gone forever. Yet a little piece you carve and you worship. And that's what you delight in. It's like Isaiah's like, why? But God, he gives them over to the depravity says, they know not. Down in verse 18, they know not, nor do they discern. For he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so they cannot understand. Why does God do that? I can't, I can't answer that question. I'm not God. 
But I do know this. God isn't forcing them to do something they don't want to do. They delight in their idolatry. He's, he's giving them what they desire. And it's only by grace that anyone walks away from that kind of life. It's by grace spiritual blindness is lifted. Why? It's for God, God to know. But the predisposition to worship false idols and false gods exists within the hearts of all mankind. That's the curse of sin. And the problem Isaiah saw in his day and what we see in our day is that people enjoy that delusion. I think of the 1999 movie, uh, The Matrix. It illustrates this delight and delusion quite well. If you don't know, the premise of The Matrix is that what we know in this world as reality is actually a computer simulation that seems good and normal, but it's really called The Matrix. And while most of mankind only knows the simulated reality, there are some characters who are unplugged from the simulation who have the ability to truly see the reality of the world they live in. And there's a character in the movie, Cypher, who's been unplugged from the simulation. So he knows the matrix, matrix exists and there's reality. And there's a scene where he's, he's sitting with the main antagonist, Agent Smith, and he's having what looks to be a nice steak dinner in a fine restaurant, which is not a real steak dinner in a fine restaurant. The Matrix, it does get confusing. And he's sitting at the table, and he's offered this opportunity to live in the delusion of the Matrix with no memory of the real world. And his response is this He says, I know the steak doesn't exist. I know that when I put it in my mouth, the Matrix is telling my brain that it is juicy and delicious. After nine years, you know what I realize? Ignorance is bliss. For those who find their delight in idols, ignorance is bliss. I don't want to know how wicked my sin is. I don't want to see the reality of how broken the world is, how broken I am. I don't want to have to humble myself before a holy God. Ignorance is bliss. And Isaiah says in verse 20, he feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is this not a lie in my right hand? How can we relate? Are we delighting in God? It's easy to think, wow, those guys are real dumb. But we need to ask ourselves, how are we just the same? We may not have little wooden carvings, but What are we finding our deepest joys and satisfaction in that's not God? Because I know the struggle's out there for every human on the planet. And Isaiah tells this story just not, not to just inform them of how silly idol worship is, but he's a mouthpiece for God. He's speaking and so that eyes can be open to the reality of it. So that someone would hear what he's saying, that the spirit that we talked about would be at work in their hearts and they would snap out of the blindness and see, oh, God is that. He's the one who actually created the tree. Why am I worshiping the idol that was formed from the tree when I could worship the one who created all things? 
He's the one I should worship. See, the Bible doesn't point out the folly of sin as an exercise and observation, like, and now observe over here, the people cutting down trees. They worship them. It's quite silly. Like, it's not just that. It's so that we can see it and go, oh my, that's me. What I'm doing is foolish. How I'm living is silly. How I'm living is wearying and burdening God. And that the Spirit might actually convict us and change us. So that we don't just say ignorance is bliss. But that, that knowing the Redeemer who freed us from our sin would be bliss. And that is the Redeemer who Israel needs to remember. Look at where our text goes in verse 21. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. God is saying to Israel, remember these things. Well, what things is he referring to? I think he's pointed to this whole, this whole picture that's been painted from chapter 43 to here. Keeping in mind that, you know, chapters and verses, they're not a thing. When Isaiah wrote this, this is one big thought. So when he's saying, remember these things, he wants them to recall how precious they are to God, right? We talked about that. He wants them to to remember how honored and loved they are. He wants them to remember that he's been with them through trials and tribulations. He will be with them through trials and tribulations. He wants them to remember that he has called them by name. They are his. He wants them to remember their mission and their purpose is to be witnesses to the world for his glory. He wants them to remember his preeminence and sovereignty. He wants them to remember there's no God apart from him. There's no Savior besides him. He wants them to remember that he has seen their sin. He knows their deeds, but for his own sake, he blots out their transgressions and remembers not their sins. He wants them to remember that. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. And we kind of get a condensed version of all that where he says, I formed you, you are my servant, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sin like mist. Verse 21 is, and 22 is like a summary of everything that's been laid out. Why is it important to remember these things? Because if we're constantly reminding ourselves of our value in the sight of God who loves us and redeemed us and wants to use us for his glory, we're going to be less prone to run to try and find that value and that validation in other things. We're less apt to fall into idolatry. That's why we as a a church believe strongly in gospel centrality and preaching the gospel to ourselves every day. It's built into our, our core values. I just want to remind us of those quickly here this morning. First is eternity. Gospel redemption. We were created by our, by our eternal God for eternal relationship with Him, for His glory, for our joy. Right? Sin severed that relationship with Him. 
And in his grace and love, he sent us his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the debt that we owed on the cross to redeem us and restore that relationship which was broken. So that we would no longer live for the glories of this world, but we would live for his glory in his eternal kingdom. That's why E is eternity, to remind us of that. Then we have identity, gospel transformation. Because we've been redeemed by Christ, we have a new identity, right? We're adopted sons and daughters of the living God. Our new identity, as Paul says, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Both of these passages talk about a new identity that we have as the result of being redeemed. That's why these are core values. These are the things that we need to remember. The last core value we have is community here. Gospel restoration, community. I think our website says it best, so I'm just going to quote from there directly. It says, God's eternal nature is community, Father, Son, and Spirit. One God, three persons. And since we are created in His image, we are created to be in community. Growing in Christ cannot and will not happen outside of relationships. Gospel communities are people who share life together, restoring true community. Gospel communities are places not just for information, but transformation, providing an optimal environment for life change, for the life change Jesus Christ intends for every believer. We are the missional community of God, called to reflect the missional heart of God. We will seek to meet the spiritual and physical needs of others in our community and our world with the message of Jesus Christ by demonstrating justice, mercy, and compassion to others. As we love and serve others, Little by little, people will get to see the goodness and glory of God and the way the world was before sin and will, be, and will be when God renews and restores all creation through the gospel. Why do I go through that? Because our core values are, are there to help us to remember what we've been redeemed from, who we are, and what we're called to. That's exactly what God is reminding them of in these two passages, 43 and 44. And they don't have the full revelation of who Jesus Christ is like we do, but they understand redemption. They had the sacrificial system. They understand identity. God has literally called them by name to be his and told them, you are precious. I've called you, you are mine. They would understand community as they are a nation that has been called out from the world to be his chosen people for his glory. So that's why he tells them, remember these things, O Jacob. He wants them to remember so that they would return to him. His desire is for them to come back. He doesn't just say, stay away. No, he says, return to me, for I have redeemed you. God's desire is not that his people would remain in sin, remain in idolatry, remain in their apathy towards worship, but that they would return to him. That they would once again find their solace in the rock of their salvation. 
And I love that redemption here precedes the return. He says, return to me for I have redeemed you. Too many people think that redemption happens after we decide to turn to God. We, we turn to God because he redeemed us. He's done the work. We don't do it in order to make him go, okay, I guess. He's already declared it. It's not to say we don't make a real life decision to repent of sin and turn to God. We do. But why would we make that decision? Because he's redeemed us. Because his spirit has opened our blinded eyes, given us the grace to see the need for our Savior. That's why Paul says with no ambiguity, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. And actually before this verse, Paul calls the Ephesian church to remember their redemption the same way Isaiah is calling Israel to remember their redemption. In Ephesians 2, 2 to 5, it says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Remember these things. Live in light of the redemption that God has brought forth through his own power. And and the response to this redemption, we see in verse 23. It's worship. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. I think it's really interesting here that the ones being called to worship is creation. The the heavens, the depths of the earth, the mountains, the forest. What does the carpenter cut down to worship a tree. What actually worships God? The tree. All of creation rejoices at God's redemptive work. All of creation feels the effects of mankind's sin, and all of creation feels the effects of mankind's redemption. And all creation rejoices and worships. Romans 8, 19-23 says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Creation didn't, didn't put itself into sin. Man did. They didn't bind themselves. And, and, and creation is waiting eagerly for the redemptive work of Christ. And even creation realizes that mankind's salvation and glorification means the same for all of the created order. 
And each step of the way, God reveals himself more and more. He, he calls people to himself. In our passage, it, it's, it's Jacob, Israel. They will display his beauty. Later, we know that circle widens in Acts that we talked about to those in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to all the ends of the earth. They will know the redemptive hope of the gospel until one day God's redeeming work will be finished and his perfect kingdom established and all will be united in worship, singing the praises of the Lamb who was slain. And mankind and creatures alike will worship as we were created to. But until that day, what do we do? Remember these things. Remember these things, O Jacob. I would say, remember these things, King's Chapel. Remember all that God has done and display it to the world. We are, we are active participants with God in His redemption. We, as we remember the beauties of the gospel, it's our mission to share it with others, to make disciples who make disciples to the glory of God. And when I think of this word, remember, I think of the very purpose of the communion tables that we have. Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three to 26 he said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And we had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Communion itself doesn't redeem us, but it points us to our Redeemer. It forces us to remember and to contemplate the price that was paid so our transgressions could be blotted out like a cloud, as Isaiah says. And though God's grace and his salvation is given freely, it isn't cheap. We were bought with a price. We were bought by the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. Remember these things. Christ died for our sins so that we would have a restored relationship with our Creator. He gives us the gift of His Spirit so that we would no longer live as thirsty people looking to false gods to quench our thirst, but that we would be satisfied people who know what living water truly is and where it can be found. And Christ did not shed His blood and hang on a tree so that His creation would in turn worship trees or worship other false gods. He shed His blood so all of creation would worship and glorify Him, that we would see the reality of sin, repent, and turn to Him for salvation. So as we approach our time of communion today, spend some time in quiet confession and repentance. And go through these questions. Where, where are the idols in my life? What, what is taking God's place? What is consuming us so much that we just fail to remember the gospel? Use this time of communion to remember your rock and redeemer. And after you've spent some time in, in quiet confession, in repentance, confession, all who know Christ as Lord and put their faith in Him can come and take of the elements of these tables. If you're not a believer in Christ, we ask that you would refrain from taking of communion. It is for those who trust Christ. But 
If that's you, I pray today would be the day you do trust him to quench your spiritual thirst, that you would find that satisfaction for your soul. So the band can come up. They're going to lead us in song. After you come to the table and you grab the, the bread, the juice, take it back to your seat. We'll all take together communion corporately. And as a church family, we will remember all that Christ has done. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the words that you gave Isaiah thousand, over 2,000 years ago, almost 3,000 years ago, and that those words can still ring true to us, that your spirit is still at work bringing the life to our souls from these words. And Father, I pray that as we meditate on these things, we would not just be merely looking at these words on a page and go, I'm glad I'm not like those people, but that, Father, you would help us to see how we are indeed like them, but you would also enable us to see your mercy, your grace, and the love that you have for us in Jesus Christ. So, Father, lead us by your Spirit to to see what is stopping that flow of renewal that we have in our relationship with you what idols are are getting in the way what's taking our affection and help us to just get it out of the way lead us to confession repentance so that we can sing together and rejoice and worship you for the redemption that you've given us help us to remember our rock and our redeemer and it's in his name the name of jesus we pray amen